We ran Quibbids for several years and we had some other ideas, some other concepts that we tried. And what was uh, really so interesting about that period is you had this group of guys in the middle of Oklahoma, you know, which is not exactly known as like the e-commerce, you know, capital of the world. But we had done literally like tens of millions of fulfillments and we had done you know, over a billion dollars in sales. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. My name is Mike Beckham. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Simple Modern, uh, leading a pretty high growth, privately held drinkware company, although we do a lot more than just drinkware these days. Uh, I'm a father, have two kids, uh, been married for 18 or 19 years. And then I also teach. I'm an adjunct uh, teacher at the University of Oklahoma, the entrepreneur in residence there. Wow. So uh, you, you've got a lot in your plate, um, but I actually want to go before Simple Modern. I want to talk about uh, uh, qu- qu- Quibids, Quibids. Uh, I've heard uh, that name mispronounced every possible way uh, yeah. it can be said. Yes. The way it was supposed to be pronounced was, qu- was Quibids, Quibids, which is like quick bids right. together. But yeah, there you go. So can you tell me um, the beginnings of, of that company with um, your, I, I believe, what was your brother that you started it with? Uh, my younger brother, he's about two and a half years younger than me. He had, so this would have been like 2008, 2009. He'd started like a one-man digital marketing uh, company and had done really well. Uh, had done well enough that he, he was like, I, I really love entrepreneurship. I've got this idea, you know, for a company that would you be willing to ha- kind of help me develop it and, and launch something? It's basically like this auction concept where it costs money every time you bid and the price would go up one cent and you could uh, potentially win things for much less than the, their their retail value. And if you didn't, you could just buy it for full value. So I was kind of like, hey, this is just going to be a side project. Uh, I don't see this being a big venture. So we launched that in October of 2009. By uh, November of 2010, we had our first million dollar revenue day. Which wow. was just, yeah, it's just wild. Like, and, and I'm 30, I'm not even 31. I'm the oldest person associated with the company. We had gotten this small office and it, it and, and we just kept cramming more people into it because we were growing so fast. And so like, we just got way too many people in this office and it's just a, a bunch of young people that don't even understand how abnormal it is to have something go this well. While this is going on, I'm also leading this nonprofit, um, you know, role where it's growing really rapidly. And then we get pregnant with our, our first child, my wife and I do. And I'm like, man, I, I just can't, you know, I'm, I'm working like two full-time jobs here and I want to be a really engaged father. Like I can't do all this. Uh, and so uh, made the decision with my wife that, hey, it's, it's time to move over to the for-profit world. And so was that moment where you're like, I need to get into the for-profit world. Was that an all in on Quibids? Uh, I think it was more from the very beginning. My thought process has, had, of going into the for-profit world was I want to be a part of making positive impact and change in the world. And honestly, when I when I first moved into the the 
for-profit world, I thought, I'm going to do this for like four or five years, and then hopefully there'll be some kind of a liquidity event. I'm going to start a foundation, and uh, I'm going to be back working probably more in the nonprofit sector. Uh, and that's not how it worked out. As you decided to focus more on, on being a father, um, when did uh, the opportunity for Simple Modern uh, strike? We ran Quibids for several years, and we had some other ideas, some other concepts uh, that we tried. Over like a, probably about a seven-year period, we, we just launched and grew several different brands. You had th- uh, this group of guys in the middle of Oklahoma, you know, which is not exactly known as like the e-commerce you know, capital of the world, but we had done literally like over a billion dollars in sales. And we had done, you know, tens of millions of fulfillment. And so we just, it, one of the things you'll, you'll see people talk about this that have been in the space, like e-commerce in particular, you have to be good at so many different things. Like there's a lot of industries where really, if you're really good at, you know, one or two skills, you can be successful. E-commerce, it's like you have to have understanding of everything all the way from, you know, marketing to branding to logistics to fulfillment to legal to, you know, whatever. So as we got to like 2014, 2015, we just had really developed a ton of competencies. I really started to feel like I did want to start a company where I really was in charge of setting culture uh, and that had a really clearly defined mission statement, probably around something around giving and generosity. A couple guys that had worked uh, with me for several years, uh, hadn't had equity in any of the previous ventures, approached me and just said, hey, we would love to do something. It's just like a side project with you outside of work. And I, I love spending time with them. They've both been friends for quite a long time. And so I, I said, sure, I, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to look at it. We didn't know, we didn't know what we wanted to sell. Um, what we did know is we knew the type of culture that we, we loved being a part of. We knew we wanted to sell really high quality products. And we knew we wanted to do something that was e-commerce first. And that was about it. We generated a list of like, what are all the things we could sell? And we made like a hundred ideas. And it's funny, man, if I, I pull up that list today, so many of those are like actually terrible ideas, and I'm really fortunate that we didn't we didn't choose to go those directions, uh, and we didn't even actually pick drinkware first. We picked a couple of other things and had just enough success that I think we were like, this is viable if we can find really the right product. So we didn't sell our first drinkware product until about uh, March of 2016, and that's when uh, things really started to kind of ramp. So can you tell me a little bit about what your growth trajectory was What like a- after you found drinkware as a focus? And actually, can you tell me how you decided upon drinkware as a focus? I think the, the drinkware thing was just kind of a combination of we, we love the product. It's a great product. I mean, the insulated drinkware thing is one of those magical moments where it's like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I put ice in here and like it's still in there and it's like 24 hours later or whatever. And you're just like, how is this possible? I think the thing that was really fascinating about the Dreamforce space, a couple things. One was that it's an incredibly competitive space. I mean, you've got brands like Stanley and Thermos that are like over a century old. And then Yeti had this innovation of like, well, what if you use vacuum insulation really around cold and not just hot? And that was incredibly disruptive to like the category. All of a sudden it was like, oh man, this is a big breakthrough and there's a huge market for this. When we came on the scene in like 2016, 
it really felt like, man, we are very late to the party. There are a lot of established brands. They're well capitalized. They're well run. Uh, they, they've got brand recognition. And so one of the questions I get the most frequently is like, okay, how in the world did this work? Because yeah, the category was going through this disruption and growth, but like there were so many established brands. So one of the things that I, I tell this to students all the time when they're thinking about an entrepreneurial opportunity is that it's really easy to equate entrepreneurship with something bespoke or unique, like an idea that nobody's done before. Most entrepreneurship isn't that. Now, most successful entrepreneurship is looking at a market and addressing a need that's been addressed previously, but in a new or different way. Either you're, you're taking a new channel approach or you have a different value proposition or a different delivery mechanism, or you found a way to make a little bit of a better mousetrap. So for us, the entry point was in 2016, you had a lot of incumbents that were really built around physical retail. They had a presence to some extent online, but they certainly weren't prioritizing it. And specifically, none of them were really prioritizing Amazon as a channel. And we really knew Amazon could be, Amazon is a massive channel. And that we felt like if we really put all of our focus on that channel first, that we could win there. Maybe not win the channel, but like we could be really competitive there and we could be successful. And so that, that's pretty much what we did. And it's one of those things where it's like, even today, if you said, hey, knowing everything you do about drinkware, could you relaunch your brand and have the same results in 2022? I don't know that we could have. I mean, some of it, sometimes you have an insight that's particular to a moment in time. And at that point, I think 2015, 16, 17 was this point where if you really got serious about, about digital, specifically Amazon at that point, you could still uh, really gain market share. So that's what we did. We really focused on Amazon. We, we aggressively took profits and reinvested those into new products. And we, we really took advantage of the fact that on e-commerce, you have kind of an endless shelf. So we can offer lots of sizes. We can offer lots of colors. We can offer, you know, lots of different um, styles and form factors. And when you kind of step back and say, well, what was going on there? Part of it was we were early to identifying a, a key aspect of our of our category, which is that water bottles like this, you know, it's a little bit more like a watch or like shoes or like a handbag it has a functional purpose, but it also has this kind of fashion. Stylistic purpose, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so we really leaned into that. I mean, and when we, when we started doing this stuff, I mean, Yeti was still selling like all stainless steel. There were a couple of brands, uh, you know, like notably like swell and corksicle that had started to kind of explore with like aesthetics. So we really leaned in heavy there. And I think it helped us to get kind of initial, you know, some initial traction. Now, what we learned later that was super interesting is that when you when you lean into style the way that we did, our customer base was really heavily females, like 25 to 45. And so that that's really where we were finding the traction and the fit, which makes sense. You know, you had we had competitors like Yeti that were just killing it with males and us trying to go head to head there would have probably been suicidal. But instead, we found this other demographic that what we were doing really resonated with. Like that's actually shown up huge down the line with how we've done subsequent products and just how we've thought about the company. Looking at the company today, like what are you most excited for and what are you most focused on? We will grow uh, a lot more this year than we've ever grown in a year. One of the most unexpected things for me 
is I always assumed that we would have a shot maybe to uh, do well online. We, we had, you know, kind of deep expertise there and we focused on it early, but I always assumed we would never be able to really break into to brick and mortar uh, because the people there were so entrenched. And, and that's been easily the biggest uh, positive surprise uh, in the business is that not only have we gotten into brick and mortar retail, but we've uh, had as much or more success in places like Target as we have on Amazon. And so this year we will uh, launch into Walmart's nationwide in a pretty major way. And our Target distribution will grow another 60-something percent. We're doing like some really cool uh, exclusive things. Like we've got a Target Disney Simple Modern line that's coming out that we're really, you know, all, all three organizations are really excited about. Our most exciting product launches, our most exciting distribution increases are, are about to happen. So that's incredibly exciting uh, that we might sell 10 to 11 million units this year, which at this point we're really getting to kind of global scale. As you get to global scale, are you still focused on that that same target demographic or do you think you're expanding your reach to more men or to reach other age groups? You know, we're probably two to one female to male, but we still have a lot of, you know, great male customers. When you establish trust, and, and a good brand identity with the demographic that we did. These are usually the people doing most of the purchasing for households. And so when we expanded into kids, we've, we've had just really tremendous product market fit. And in a way that makes sense with, you know, what your customer, what are additional products your customer already wants to buy from you? But the times that I feel like we've lost the path the most is when we've started to try and, you know, decide what we think we should do next more than listen to our customer and really talk to, because, you know, at the end of the day, business is a lot about just serving your customer. And if you do a good job of serving your customer, then they're going to want to buy from you. And there's always, there's always going to be, you know, the revenue and the profits to support the organization. And so if you were to look back on this journey, um, from uh, your first company up until now, uh, uh, what advice do you think you would give your younger self at the beginning of this journey to help make the, the road a little more efficient and, and get to where you are a little more quickly? A few things I'd say off, off the top. One is I'm a big believer in having a growth mindset. You know, growth mindset is just this idea that some people tend to view the world as you have a certain amount of talent and ability and you're just doing the most you can with that. And other people have a have a perspective that, that really like what you're capable of can be grown and expanded, but it's not easy. And I think that it's not easy part is the part I would have focused on with myself. I would have said, hey, Mike, you, you, you need to have a growth mindset, but you also need to know that failure will be part of that. There's a great quote I use sometimes, wisdom comes from experience and experience comes from failure. So for me, some of the most powerful things have actually been the things that I did that did not go well because they caused the kind of reflection and they produced the growth needed, I think, to build the organization that we have today. I think another thing that I would say is I would tell myself, really focus on process over results. It's very easy to look at top line numbers, what are we doing in revenue, or to look at the perception other people have of what you're doing in the organization. What successful people do is successful people really focus on what are the things that I can control, 
and am I doing those with as much excellence and as much deliberateness as I possibly can? Do the best you can with what you can control and over time, you set yourself up to be successful. You set yourself up for things to go your way. I think the final thing, and this is one of our big things we talk about with our culture is just, you know, what makes life meaningful, I think is relationships and the way we connect with people. And I don't ever want to get so focused or sucked into trying to grow an organization trying to be, you know, successful or whatever that I'm missing the fact that when I'm 75, when I'm 80, what I'm going to really look back on, I'm going to care about is what were the quality of relationships and connections I had with people. From millennials on down, this is what they want. They want real, authentic connection, and they want to feel like their job means something, that it actually is impacting the world in a more positive way. The entrepreneurs, the business leaders, the political leaders that win are going to be the ones that help to provide that avenue for people. It's just so much more than pay. There's just a bunch of people that are just opting out, and it doesn't matter what you offer to pay them. If you're not providing these other things, they just can't motivate themselves to work those jobs. That's been a huge thing for me. And when I have meaningful relationships with my coworkers and when I'm doing this with teammates that I, that I love and I know their families, and you know, like that actually will matter to me. So I, I think I'd probably, those are three of the things I'd tell myself. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Maybe Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Luis Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrive, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amartya. Tiffany Day, Jonathan Ross, and Diana Marie Kendoza. See more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.